You have attuned to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Welcome back to the Archaeology Fundamentals installment. Today I'd like to introduce you to two specialty topics in archaeology, the study of gender and the study of status. So as such, um, what I'm going to do is divide today's talk into two segments. So we'll treat uh, the archaeological study of gender first, and then we'll pivot to how uh, archaeology uh, treats status. So I think you'll recall uh, in the first episode that I laid out this long history of uh, men's success in archaeology uh, on the very first episode of Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. The discipline's skew in this direction is something that's really come under critique uh, over the last uh, 40 years or so. And I'd like to begin today's episode with a quote from Margaret Conkey and Janet Spector's essay titled Archaeology and the Study of Gender. Um, the essay was published in 1984 and their work really represents one of the first major theoretical pieces on the topic of gender and archaeology. So they say here, quote, we show how archaeology provides substantiation for a particular gender mythology. The study of gender should make clear how archaeology has substantiated a set of culture-specific beliefs about the meaning of masculine and feminine, about the capabilities of men and women, about their power relations, and about their appropriate roles in society. We argue that archaeology like other traditional disciplines, viewed through the lens of feminist criticism, has been neither objective nor inclusive on the subject of gender, end quote. So, you know, what strikes me um, in this essay is their argument that archaeology has this longstanding tradition of grafting traditional Western views of gender onto archaeological cultures of the past. So, in other words, this rigid gender binary of man or woman, of masculine or feminine, what this really reflects is the very Western idea that gender is either or and assigned based on biological sex. So, a little background here might be helpful for some listeners. Social scientists distinguish between the words sex and gender, sex referring to the physical and biological differences between males and females. Gender is a word that we use to refer to the kinds of expected behaviors that cultures assign to different sexes. In other words, sex is biological, gender is cultural. Like race, like ethnicity, gender is something that anthropologists see uh, as something that's constructed or made by cultures. Gender is something that is taught to people of a culture, and it's something that members of a culture learn. So a feminist critique in anthropology asserts that this traditional binary of man and woman, 
of masculine and feminine, uh, that these are not inclusive, nor do they represent how all cultures, whether we're speaking of cultures in the terms of archaeological ones of the past or ones that exist in the present day, um, they, it doesn't represent how all these cultures conceive of gender. Now, I do have a full-length episode that treats how anthropologists, uh, specifically cultural anthropologists, work with the analytic of gender. And I think this may be of interest uh, to listeners who are looking for just a little bit more on this topic. Um, So you can find this on my podcast. Uh, It's located in Season 1, Episode 7, and I, I believe the episode is titled Just Gender. So uh, pivoting back to uh, how archaeologists uh, sort of uh, articulate uh, gender in archaeology, um, Conkey and Specter argue that the field of archaeology has been what they call historically androcentric, meaning uh, the interpretation of artifacts of archaeological sites um, have really been focused on what men do in a society, which kind of results in this interpretive bias in the sense that it leaves out women, children, and non-binary gender identities. It also bears noting, I think, that at the time of their writing, which was in the uh, the early 1980s, the field of archaeology, even at that time, I would say was still dominated by men. Um, The field has become more balanced and inclusive in recent years, But I do think a lot of archaeologists today would probably say that there are still um, underrepresented uh, voices. Now, there's a site I'd like to talk with you about. Um, Its name is Indian Knoll, and it's located uh, in western Kentucky on the Green River. The site was excavated first in 1916 by C.B. Moore, and then later by William Webb in the 1930s and 40s. Their work identified 1,200 human burials that dated between 6,100 years before the present and 4,500 years before the present. And they observed here that males were buried with fish hooks, axes, and other tools. And females were buried with beads, uh, mortars, and pestles. Now, the curious thing to Moore uh, and Webb was that both males and females were buried with a throwing stick that propels a spear. Uh, it's a specific tool that we call today an atlatl, although some people pronounce it atl-atl. Either is correct. Atlatls, we think, were used for hunting game animals. But uh, William Webb, in his day and age, uh, simply could not fathom the possibility that women may have played any role in the hunt of taking down game. So Webb wrote uh, uh, in, in one of his writings in 1946, and I quote him directly here, he says, it is hardly to be supposed that infants, children, and women would have had any practical use in life for an atlatl. So uh, the prevailing gender model was what we call man the hunter. Yet we see today, interestingly enough, through ethnographic evidence, that women did hunt among traditional cultures. And some examples are the Inuit, the Crow, and the Agta. 
So a feminist critique of this interpretation bears in mind that uh, traditional gender roles might not be how people of the past thought about gender, and that this man the hunter model is not something that applies to everything. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of uh, solution. And we certainly cannot rule out uh, that women did not play a role in the hunts that took place in and around the site of Indian Knoll. A second site I like to talk about on the topic of gender is Donna Seifert's uh, good essay titled The Archaeology of Working Women. And this was published in 1991. So Seifert uh, excavated a site called Hooker's Division, which is located in Washington, D.C.'s uh, previous or historic red light uh, district. So during the American Civil War, uh, Major General Joseph Hooker and his troops uh, were stationed in Washington, D.C., but there was actually really growing concern that off-duty soldiers were flooding the nation's capital for saloons and fast women. So these establishments were ultimately condensed upon order into what became known as Hooker's Division, which uh, in its day was sort of like the red light district uh, that actually operated uh, within sight of the White House. So in Seifert's uh, essay, she writes, quote, for working class wives, the home was the workplace and many of these women participated in both paid and unpaid labor without going to work. Turn of the century brothels were also both workplace and home, end quote. So really, um, what, what Seifert ultimately gets at in her essay is that there were uh, few economic opportunities for women in the mid-19th century, but brothel work was women's work. Prostitution was a way of life for uh, working women, and it was a way to significantly increase earnings in the face of financial crisis. So women entered brothel work at Hooker's Division to seek more money, to increase their social mobility, to uh, achieve a higher standard of living, or in cases uh, to cope with a sudden change in income after the death of a husband. Now, the archaeology of Hooker's division gives us some sense of what kind of material evidence is recovered from brothels and how those assemblages differ from those excavated from private working class homes. And I think you'll see as you read her essay that there are some striking differences. So, for example, far less kitchen goods are represented in brothels but far more clothing-related artifacts like buttons are encountered in the record. There are typically more uh, bits of arms, or we're talking about guns and ammunition, that are uh, identified at brothels. And perhaps this speaks to uh, the heightened sense of a need for security in what would have been a probably a pretty dangerous line of work for women. Typically, more smoking pipes are found in brothels, and we think these were probably used uh, to entertain clients and as uh, props. We also find more lighting glass in these establishments, uh, like uh, glass from fancy chandeliers, 
And this probably speaks to a display of status, yes, but also to the time of day in which business took place, which would be at night when we would need uh, indoor artificial lighting. We also tend to see more religious artifacts at brothels, which is really kind of interesting, as well as other kinds of personal artifacts like jewelry, combs, and mirror fragments, which speak to the emphasis placed on bodily adornment and the women's presentation of self. So what Seaford, I think, really captures is the material dimension of one of the few wage labor options that women could access in the 19th century. And it appears to be so taboo in nature that details of the profession were often left off written records. Um, and this is one of the ways, one of the cool ways that archaeology gets to show its special ability to illuminate the past in ways that um, I think historical documents and records simply cannot. So you'll find a copy of Seifert's essay in your learning path this week that I really hope that you'll check out. It's a really kind of interesting read and it's a bit different than some of the things that we've been reading about in the textbook. And I do recommend reading it with an eye to the way that brothel assemblages are distinct and uh, the ways that we might actually recognize them in the archeological record given that brothels were often not marked on maps or discussed in historical documents. I'll also link you to a very short but a very good documentary that presents archeologist Mary Beaudry's analysis of a brothel that she was involved uh, in excavating uh, located in Boston, Massachusetts. So in this next segment, we'll pivot uh, to the study of status or a social position in the archeological record. Status may be achieved and earned uh, by an individual during their life. And an example of this would be the status of graduate or president. These are titles that people earn in their life after having uh, completed uh, something. Status may also be ascribed and assigned at birth in some cultures, um, such as the status of prince, for example. That is a status that you're born into. So just how societies assign roles to particular genders, so too do societies assign roles to particular social statuses. Just as a, a quick example, you might think about what the expected role of a high school graduate might be uh, versus the expected role of a prince. The site of Moundville, located along the uh, Black Warrior River in Alabama, does demonstrate one way in which archaeologists can look at status in the archaeological record. So Moundville was first excavated by C.B. Moore between 1905 and 1906 and has subsequently been dated uh, to between 950 and 550 BP before the present. People who lived at Moundville during this time were part of what we call the Mississippian cultural tradition which we define as uh, intensive maize horticulture and uh, these large earthen platform mounds that were used to elevate structures. So that in itself is a message of status. Um, but uh, the platform mounds were also used to bury the dead. 
So mortuary areas were excavated uh, much later by archaeologists Christopher Peebles and Susan Cuss uh, in 1977. And they were able to identify the remains of about 3,000 individuals. And they noticed an interesting pattern. So they observed that higher status individuals, including infants, were buried with exotic goods, copper artifacts, um, and a material that we call galena. Galena is the natural mineral form of lead. Whereas lower status individuals were buried with pottery vessels. So the fact that infants were given lavish high status burials demonstrates to us that status was something that was ascribed at birth at Moundville. The House of William Paca, uh, who signed the Declaration of Independence, is yet another site that I think speaks to how status can be interpreted in archaeology. So the Paca House is located in uh, the city of Annapolis, Maryland, which uh, was actually quite a very wealthy city in the 18th century during Paca's time, actually remains wealthy today. Um, the, the site of uh, Pacus House was excavated by archaeologist Mark Leone, uh, who's working out of the University of Maryland. And Leone was interested in how Georgian order was manifested by Paca and how this is something that's emblematic of a very high social status. By Georgian order, by the way, I'm referring to this kind of popular worldview that arose between 1660 and 1810 from scientific reasoning that people can control nature and that they can, uh, excuse me, that they can also control their environment. So Paca's garden was constructed uh, about 1760, which is actually a kind of an important time in terms of, uh, you know, this is a time we see growing pressure from England. But it's also a growing uh, sense of fear that's sort of uh, surfacing in response to slave uprisings and slave revolts um, that were directed towards white slave owners. <clears throat> so bearing that in mind, uh, Leone's work uncovered uh, just such a dramatic landscape of architecture that symbolized Paca's control over his domicile, so his living area, um, his property, and the environment on the property. So archaeologists uh, were able to infer a, a symmetrical and balanced floor plan. Uh, they recovered uh, sets of matching pottery, um, even uh, evidence of segmented meals. They uncovered evidence of these really dramatic steps uh, that lead to uh, what was actually called his power garden. 125 paleobotanical samples were taken directly from his garden, and these revealed uh, just such a variety of ornamental trees, shrubs, and flowers, uh, many of which we assume were probably uh, imports from uh, exotic areas around the world. Also identified on uh, Paca's property were other buildings, uh, canals, ponds, spring houses, and bathhouses. So you know, I think what the archaeology of Paca's house really demonstrates is how Paca created this kind of grand illusion of wealth and power 
by controlling nature and the environment uh, that uh, extends to inside of the house and outside of this premises during a time of really great worry. The work at William Packers Garden, uh, as well as Hooker's Division, is actually a really nice transition to the topic of historical archaeology uh, that I'd like to introduce you to in next week's episode. Historical archaeology is another specialty within archaeology, and it's actually the one that I've been uh, formally trained in. It's a specialty that deals with reconciling evidence from historical documents versus evidence that archaeologists excavate from archaeological sites. And the topic often reveals some tension between the two, making for some pretty compelling interpretations of the past. So I hope that you'll tune in for next week's episode on that topic. Uh, as always, thank you for streaming the Fundamentals of Archaeology a season on Cultural Corner with Dr. Carey. Have an awesome week and take good care.